Okay, Joshua chapter 6, if you'll join me there in Joshua. Chapters 1 through 5 have basically been sort of Israel being prepared uh, to enter in, uh, to take over the land, the conquest that God has been promising to them. And the first five chapters has sort of been God's time period of preparing them for this. We saw, of course, the great uh, miracle that God did as he took them across the Jordan at the flood stage, stopped up the waters of the Jordan, even as he did with the Red Sea to bring them into the land. And then, of course, we saw last week in chapter 5 there uh, how God had a few more things that needed to take place in the lives of his people to prepare them. God wanted to bring them uh, to this miraculous experience where they begin to overcome enemies and obstacles, which we're going to see begins to happen now here in chapter 6 with the victory over Jericho that God grants to them. But there were some things that God needed to do first in their lives. God needed to, in a sense, set apart their hearts afresh once again towards him, that uh, there was a need for them to, uh, in a sense, uh, allow their lives to be set apart and to be ready for what God wanted to do, to be fully devoted and committed to the Lord. They spent a little time in worship there, then observing the Passover. And of course, which I think really brings us then to Perhaps what may not have been the best chapter break, the end of chapter 5, as we saw, where then Joshua, sensing that they're about now to enter into the land, uh, or excuse me, to enter in really to the first uh, battle with Jericho as they're now on the other side of the river, uh, it tells us there, if you look back with me, chapter 5, verse 13, I just want to refresh your memory of what we looked at as we closed out last time. It came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, again, he's probably walking around, uh, you know, uh, thinking through, okay, Lord, how's this going to happen? That's obviously going to be the first uh, battle. That's going to be the first place that we have to confront one of the enemies that stand in the way of what you want for us. And as he's walking around, it says he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, that man stood opposite him with his sword drawn, again, indicating a, a, a drawn sword is the indication of someone who is ready to enter into battle or conflict to, to bring down the sword, if you would, in judgment. And Joshua went and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So uh, we sort of left off last time with that section there where Joshua now has this personal encounter uh, with which I believe, again, you're free to disagree, certainly, but what I believe was an encounter actually with the Lord himself, probably a, a pre-incarnate appearance, a, what we call theophany, a Christophany, occasions where it seems in the Bible where we see the eternally existent Son of God, Jesus Christ, who existed for all of time and eternity. He, certainly he came as a man uh, in the time that he did when he was born of a virgin through Mary, but Jesus always existed. He's been eternally existent. There seems to be these occasions we'll find in the Old Testament uh, where we see the Lord Jesus showing up and having an encounter with people in whatever form he did. And here, I believe that that's what we have here. This 
commander of the Lord's army, the commander-in-chief, if you would, of the not the physical armies of Israel, but the spiritual armies, the hosts of heaven, all the angelic realm, which will be the very reason behind why all the battles that are won are won in such a miraculous and lopsided way because it wasn't a battle that technically was happening just in the flesh. God was doing something in the realm of the spirit. And it was God's spirit that was moving and the spiritual forces of God that was granting oftentimes Israel and their feebleness and their weakness, the ability to to overcome and to experience the victory. So Joshua now has this encounter, asks him, who are you for? He just simply says, listen, uh, that's not what's important. What you need to know is that I'm now here And I'm the one that's in charge. And Joshua, if you're going to experience victory over Jericho, if you're going to experience victory anywhere in this land with the obstacles, the enemies, and everything that stands in the way of God's promises for you, you need to know that I'm the one that's in charge, that I'm the one that needs to call the shots. I'm the general. Joshua, if you follow my lead and listen to my voice and recognize it's not you that's in charge but me, then Joshua's success will be experienced. So he says as he falls in his feet in worship, okay, what does my Lord say to his servant? And I think as you come into chapter 6 now, this possibly could be, and the reason why I reference it again, it could be the continuation of this conversation that was happening there in the end of chapter 5. It's possible that what this is, is that this question that Joshua has now asked, what does my Lord say to his servant? In other words, give me the marching orders that that's now what's happening here. The marching orders are being given. It could be this meeting continues on as we now come into the sixth chapter. It says, chapter six, verse one, now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. That's what we would call today lockdown. Uh, that's what it's like. That's what lockdown is called. I, I've been in and out of uh, prisons, uh, Pennsylvania, here in New Jersey as well, and I have been in the prisons on occasion when there was a lockdown. And those are not times when you wish you were visiting someone. Uh, because when a lockdown happens, no one is coming in, no one is going out, and you're staying put uh, until those doors are going to be released and opened. And uh, uh, this seems to be, again, the idea here that Jericho, sensing the children of Israel right there now on the edge, knowing that they're about to probably launch an attack against them, it says they should securely shut up the city No one was going out. All the people had sort of come inside the city walls to keep themselves safe. They made sure that no one was going to pass through or get into this walled city. And it's at that point, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. So we now come to this first City, this first people group that the children of Israel are going to overcome as God allows them to uh, have a conquest over this promised land he wants to give to them. And Jericho, of course, we read here, uh, we know historically, was actually one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world. Thousands of years, the city of Jericho dates back historically, archaeology tell us, when there were inhabitants in Jericho. Now, at this point in time historically that we're reading over here, currently Jericho was the capital city of the Amorite people. And among the 
about seven or so people groups remember they've been referred to many times you know the Amorites the Girgashites the all these different ites names out the Amorites were known to be the strongest of those people groups in the land of Canaan and this is the capital city of the Amorites Jericho and we know from archaeological studies that it was actually a double-walled city. Uh, it's believed that actually there was somewhere about 15 to 20 feet between the two walls. It had an exterior wall and an interior wall, which indicates just very simply that it was a well-organized and well-fortified city. It was considered an impregnable city. The, the way it was set up, it shows you they had a strong ability to uh, resist ever being overcome. Verse 1 is trying to indicate that tear to us, as the Holy Spirit tells us. The city was, it says, securely shut up. The idea is that they felt very secure, if you would. To most military advances or attacks, they were usually quite able to resist anyone from overcoming them. They were deeply entrenched. Uh, and this would be the largest and the most difficult battle that Israel is going to have to face. And of course, this is the one that God sends them against first. Uh, this walled city, which seems like it is just unconquerable. And of course, as we look at Jericho and we think about these things for our own lives, and we've talked about before how the promised land and inheriting the promised land is a picture of us inheriting the promised life, the, the promised life in the spirit. Israel was given a land we're given a life in Christ and our Joshua, Jesus, is the one who can take us into the promised life of the things of the Spirit that the Bible promises to us of the fullness of the life in Christ, much of what we read in the New Testament letters. And uh, I think every person, if you would, sort of has a Jericho in their life. In fact, some of us, maybe we have more than one Jericho, but everybody sort of has a Jericho. That it's that thing that stands in the way, uh, if you would, that you think in your life is just unconquerable. Uh, and it could be many different things uh, for all of us. Uh, maybe it's some difficult barrier that just holds you back from God's best for your life uh, and God has an ideal for your life he has what's best for your life and maybe there's some barrier some difficult thing that's just holding you back from God's best uh, maybe it's something in a sense like Jericho here again it's perhaps maybe something really that's very deeply entrenched in your life maybe like Jericho with its long history and being deeply entrenched it's something that you've had a long history with maybe for a long time period now it's existed it's been a hindrance in your life if you would uh, that has really kept you from experiencing God's plan for your life from experiencing God's promised life in the spirit and being able to experience the fullness of a fruitful life in the spirit experiencing his will uh, and it's deeply entrenched and it just appears that it is impossible for you to overcome it and that could be many different things for all of us. For some people, that may be a sin in their life, some perhaps life-dominating habit, maybe some part of the old life that you've still never been able to get victory over. And, and in a sense, it becomes this Jericho thing, this thing that you look at and think, boy, I've been able to conquer this, and I've been able to conquer this, but it just seems that there's this one thing this this thing that there is just a wall up that it just seems impossible to conquer this and to overcome this and you look at it and it's your Jericho in the sense where it looks intimidating and there's a part of you that just thinks you know what I just don't ever think that's possible to conquer 
Uh, it just doesn't seem like that that's possible. I just think that that is going to be entrenched in my life. And I guess, here's your mentality, I guess that's just going to be my Achilles heel as a Christian. That sin, that life-dominating habit, whatever it may be, maybe it's some grudge or unforgiveness, maybe it's you know uh, pornography, maybe it's a struggle with drugs or alcohol or some sin from your past before you came to Christ or maybe even something you've fallen prey to since you become a Christian, but you look at it and you just say, I just don't see how the walls of that are ever going to come down in my life. It just seems impossible. For some of you, perhaps it may be some situation or a circumstance where there's something that has taken place that's put a wall up a barrier if you would that is holding you back from experiencing God's plan and God's good intention for you in a relationship or in some aspect of your life and I mean to be quite honest uh, people do have the capacity do they not to kind of put walls up when things happen and sometimes something will transpire, some hurt, some sin, some issue. Somebody just goes through something in their life. And all of a sudden, uh, I look at what's described there in verse 1. It says, they were securely shut up and no one went in and no, no one came in and no one went out. And sometimes that, that, that's a good description. People can get like that. People kind of go on lockdown and they put up a wall and nobody's coming in. And I'm not coming out and I'm securely shutting myself in and all of a sudden there's this barrier and this wall up. And sometimes in relationships, we know that wall's not supposed to be there. We know this isn't God's heart. This isn't God's will for that to be there. And, and, and yet something has happened and it's never in a sense been dealt with properly and brick after brick just got built up and built up and built up. And now we look at it and we just think, I, just, I guess that there's just always going to be a wall there. There's just always going to be a wall between us. And as Christians, sometimes we only, well, just the will of the Lord be done. Can I tell you, that's not God's heart, especially if it's with another Christian. The heart of God is to bring down walls, to bring down barriers, not to allow there to be barriers, not to allow there to be things. And, and God wants to bring those things down. Again, whether it's a wall that you know, keeps us hindered because of it's a sin in our life or some relational thing or just some circumstance, maybe it's debt, whatever. And we go, oh, that is just, it's a hindrance. It's never going to come down. It just looks impossible. What this chapter makes us realize is in the same way that everybody has a Jericho and God brings the walls of Jericho down here for Israel graciously and powerfully, I tell you this, the Bible says that our God changes not. And he's not a God of partiality, which means he doesn't do something for one people in history. He doesn't do something for one person spiritually that he would not do for anyone else. He wants to do these things. It is the heart of God to do these things. And it may work itself out differently. But listen, I want to encourage you tonight to don't, if you would, fall into that heart of unbelief where you just lose complete hope. Listen, as long as you're still breathing and God's still ruling, there's hope. There's still hope. And we should keep praying. Jesus tells us, even when we pray, he says, listen, when you pray, don't lose heart. We should continue to pray persistently. Lord, I don't understand. And yes, it seems unconquerable. And I know that it looks absolutely impossible, but we have a Bible that tells us that with God, all things are possible. It also says that with God, nothing will be impossible. So that's a pretty good two-sided coin to keep in your pocket. With God, nothing will be impossible. And with God, all things are possible. 
Everything's possible with God. Nothing's impossible with God. And as long as God is involved, there's still that opportunity. And I see here a passage that reveals to us that the Lord delights to give victory over the Jerichos in our lives. Because it's him who gives the victory. It's him who's able to grant the victory. He desires for us to be overcomers, the Bible tells us. And we overcome by faith. He desires us to be more than conquerors, not to be a helpless victim, but to experience his victory. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he there describing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most powerful thing, if you would, the, the, the power of Christ to raise from the dead, which gives to us all the power in our Christian life, our spiritual life that we inherit, like they're inheriting a land. And Paul says in that passage about the, the essence of the spiritual life, he says this, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear that. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that we achieve victory, we pursue victory. It says that God gives us the victory. Victory isn't something that we have to go conquer on our own. Victory is something that we receive as we believe and we just follow God's leading and we let God work by his power and God can bring down walls that seem impossible to come down to bring us into those things that are a part of his will for our lives, his plan and his greater ideal for what perhaps we're not experiencing yet. So here they are, they're facing those walls there it looks like it isn't going to happen. And it's at that point as Joshua is in that moment that he hears the voice of the Lord say to him, Joshua, he says, verse 2, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men, men of valor. So God speaks a word of encouragement and that's what you call a promise. And I want you to notice the language. The way it's written as well in the Hebrew, I have given. The idea, it's written in the past tense. Now, the experience hasn't happened yet, but yet God says, I have given. Again, keep in mind, God exists outside the time continuum that you and I live in. We live in this, what we, you know, past and present and future. God is the great I am. He's the eternally existent God who is spanning all of time and eternity. Everything to God is... so. In that sense, that's why prophecy can take place. That's why God can speak prophetically today or, or God in the Old Testament could speak through a prophet of something that wouldn't happen until 700 years later because God was already 700 years ahead even though 700 years hadn't gotten there yet. And so God with emphatic uh, you know, certainty could say, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And God would speak of something with absolute certainty that wouldn't happen. But listen, that's not a problem if you're God <laughs> because God's already there. So God speaks here and he says, Joshua, I know the walls are still up. Joshua, you don't even know how the walls are going to come down. Joshua, you don't even know how it's going to happen and what it's going to evolve. But I'm telling you, I already gave it to you. It's already yours. It's already given because I've already declared that it's given. And in God's heart, from God's perspective, it was already finished. The experience had already happened. So God speaks in faith in this way to, to Joshua with certainty. And this is so often how the promises of God come to pass. God will speak in his word in a way whereby he speaks of something that has not yet happened as if it already has. And we're called to do one thing, believe. 
Not to try and reason it out in our minds, not to try and understand it, but to believe, Lord, okay, I don't know the timing, I don't know the way, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe if you say it already is mine, I'm going to believe that in your time, your way, and your will, and by your power, that it's true. And we inherit the promises of God, the Bible says, by faith. So he speaks to Joshua, his heart is stirred. Joshua has one responsibility, to believe and to walk it out. And in a sense, to, to acquire what the Lord's already given. And can I tell you this? Listen, every promise you read in the New Testament about your spiritual life, victory over sin, the things of the gifts of the Spirit, you just believe them. You believe them as God's promises and you experience the promises of God by believing those things to be true, even if they're not presently true in your life. Believe them to be true and let God work in his way and his time. So Joshua hears now, Jericho is yours, Joshua. And now he says, no doubt, let me tell you about the battle plan. And I'm sure Joshua, again, he's a military general. He was probably pretty excited to hear the battle plan until he hears what the battle plan is, of course. <laughs> Verse 3, you shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days and seven priests and I'm sure that was in a priest what the, what do priests have to do with war <laughs> remember the Levites and the priests weren't supposed to engage in the affairs of warfare and the typical work of all, all the other people in the land they were a set apart people to dedicate themselves fully to the work of the Lord in the tabernacle and ministry and, and now all of a sudden God's involving the priests we begin to see how this is a very unorthodox plan for battle that God's offering. The seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with a ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout that is on that seventh day after the seventh time around. And here's what will happen. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat. <laughs> and I find that humorous. Maybe you don't. But you have to imagine Joshua hearing this. This is a military general. He's, he's experienced in warfare. And he's hearing nothing here about battering rams. He's hearing nothing about uh, scaling ladders to put up against the walls of Jericho here. He says the city walls are going to fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So very simple. God says, Joshua, here's how it's going to happen. You don't have to worry about battering rams. You don't have to worry about conventional warfare. Joshua, your own experience and, and what you think is the right approach and how Joshua throw all that stuff out, all the ways that you might reason and think would be the best approach and, and your own experience. Don't let that stand in the way because he says, Joshua, my approach to this situation is going to be very unorthodox. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to assemble the priests and give the priests the ram's horns. And I want you to put a flank of soldiers in front of them and a flank of soldiers behind them. And I want you to just take a march silently, we're going to read. Without saying a word, just march around the city. And after you march around the city, go back and do nothing. And Joshua, do that for six days in a row. March around the city. Say nothing. The priests blowing the horns, that's it. March around the city like that. Once again, do nothing. Do this for six days. And then on the seventh day, Joshua... Get up 
And this time I want you to do that seven times in a row. March around the city. Seven tours around the, the city there, evaluating the walls, saying nothing, doing nothing. And after the seventh time around, when I give you the cue, everybody shout. And when you shout, see those massive, unconquerable walls? They're just going to miraculously fall down flat. And then you just run in and mop up. And that's all you're going to have to do. Now, as you look at this, would you agree, as I said, this is a rather unorthodox or unusual battle plan for experiencing victory. Yet, despite how unusual God's approach may be here, it worked. It worked. And I think it's a good reminder that God's ways and God's plan always work. Sometimes our ideas, our ways, our best efforts, our best plans and strategies with all of our great experience and, and the best of our human wisdom of, okay, I've studied this, thought about this. I've read 16 books on this subject. I got this. And we put our best effort into it and it fails miserably and the walls are still up and there's still hindrances and obstacles. And yet God here offers a way that's contradictory in many ways to human logic and reason, but it works because it's God's work and it's God's power. And it allows the power of God to be unfolded. And then guess what happens? God gets all the glory. I mean, how do you take glory for that? So tell you conquered Jericho? How did you conquer Jericho? I mean, Jericho, nobody ever could conquer. How did you, how did you finally conquer Jericho? Well, we walked around it a few times and we shouted. And the walls fell down. Obviously, you had supernatural intervention because that sounds like a pretty crazy plan there. And, and again, as they shared the testimony of what happened, there was no way they could share what happened without, in essence, everyone instantly recognizing that was a work of God. That had to be God. And God would get all the glory and God would get all the honor. It was evident that it would be a work of God. It was not by human idea or effort or ability. But see, this is so often how the Lord works in the life of the Spirit, in the things of the Christian walk. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put the shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put the shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's the reason why, 1 Corinthians 1, 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the way that God works. God works in a way so that no flesh would be able to glory in his presence. And so often God will work in unique and unusual ways for that very reason. I mean, could you imagine, think of this as well, put yourself into the sandals of those who are living this. We, you know, we may already know the, the, the story because we heard it in Sunday school class growing up or whatever, but they, they didn't read the rest of the chapter. You catch my drift? This is all happening in present time for them. Imagine Joshua hearing this, and now he, he has to believe this. He has to trust this. And okay, Lord, if this is what you say, but no doubt he's also got to convey this to you know some of his military generals that are going to be in charge as well. Can you imagine him kind of sharing? Okay, so Joshua, what's the battle plan? And Joshua was an experienced military commander. He had won some victories before, and 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 just imagine him trying to share this plan with his generals and saying, "You going to pray about that a little longer, Joshua?" I mean, just. Are you sure? 
That's what the Lord told you and just how this would be very difficult for them to to swallow and process. But again, this just shows us that the life of faith and living in the spirit is not always going to line up with human reason. Sometimes God works in unreasonable ways. He works in peculiar ways. Never for us, never ever is it for us to try and consider the reasonableness of God's word or the reasonableness of God's command to us. Our job is to just obey in faith. To obey in faith. What does my Lord say to his servant? And even if it sounds unreasonable, Lord, but if I do that, how's that going to work? Lord, Lord, if that's all, that's all? Lord, I mean, there's so much more I could do to help. I mean, walk around, say nothing, do nothing, and you're just going to bring the walls down? I mean, and, and Lord, I got, I got to do something else. I mean, I got to put a little, I mean, that almost seems irresponsible. I got to do a little more. And he says, be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes God will work in ways, as I said, that he beckons us to not try and reason out why or how, but to just believe in faith to obey the Lord in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 tells us this. Listen, Hebrews eleven thirty. 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. How did the walls of Jericho come down? Faith. Faith. God honored the faith of his people. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days, as they in faith believed God and just obediently did what God asked, nothing less, but nothing more. And they just did the simple thing God asked and in their obedience, because of their faith, it says because of that faith, God honored the faith. That's all they contributed was believing what God said and God's power did on their behalf what he did. And sometimes, listen, sometimes when Jesus is working and sometimes when Jesus is leading in our lives, our Joshua, it may not make sense rationally, but listen, spiritually, this is how walls come down in the realm of the spirit. Whether it's spiritual warfare, whether it's walls and whatever, you know, a, a sin issue, a barrier, a hindrance, a relational issue. This is how walls are, are brought down in the life of the spirit as Jesus, our Joshua, is leading us. The victory of the Lord in the spiritual life is not going to be by fleshly efforts. It's by the promises of God and trusting in them and the work of the spirit taking place. This is Second Corinthians 10 illustrated this chapter, really. Second Corinthians 10 says, as though we walk in the flesh we don't war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds there you go casting down arguments and every high thing that's exalting itself against the knowledge of God so again the Bible says though we walk in the flesh we don't war according to the flesh. Because see, here's what's happened. We live out life in the flesh. And in the fleshly experience, we encounter our Jerichos and we experience spiritual warfare in the realm of our flesh. You know, an issue going on, a relational problem, circumstances, tensions, difficult. And, and we experience the spiritual warfare in the realm of the flesh. So therefore, we try and resolve it in the flesh. 
We argue, we fight, we beckon back, we get proud, we get arrogant. You know, we, and, and so we try and fix it in the flesh. And we put our fleshly efforts with our fleshly ideas. And, our, and, and, and God says, no, you walk in the flesh, but you don't war spiritually accord, according to the flesh. That's not how you deal with spiritual battles when they exist. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual powers and principalities. We need to recognize where the warfare is happening. It's being experienced in the flesh, but it's not a fleshly battle. It's something spiritual that the enemy is behind. And he says the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but they're mighty in God, prayer and faith. And the war- This is what bring down strongholds. This is what deal with the things that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of what God would say is right or the knowledge of what God's word says. So in the same way, this is how we uh, bring down the walls in our lives. Look at verse 6. It says, Joshua then, the son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets, ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And again, remember, as we've talked about before, the Ark in many ways uh, symbolically is, is a picture of Christ in the Bible. We've talked about this in our prior studies in the Old Testament. So again, it's a representation of the presence of the Lord. Remember, the Ark was where God manifested his presence. So whenever we see the Ark, it's a reminder, a representation of the presence of God with his people. And he said to the people, verse 7, proceed, march around the city, let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So he's now giving the instructions that he's received from God. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord advanced. They blew their trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people saying to them, again, here's the other point, you shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice nor shall a word. Well, that's pretty strict. Not one word, God. Not one word. Zip it, Skippy. <laughs> Maybe that's a prophecy for one of you tonight. Not one word shall proceed out of your mouth until the day that I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. And then they don't have to shout at someone. They probably could shout hallelujah. Much better. You can spend your time shouting at someone or you can shout to the Lord and praise when you let him do it because you prayed and waited on God. Verse 11, so he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around it once and came into the camp and lodged in the camp. So day one, they did what God said. Verse 12, and Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing the seven ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did this for six days. So again, the Bible is just recording. They obeyed. They obeyed their leader in faith. They trusted together with him that God was directing that this was the word of the Lord. Verse 15, let's just continue reading as it kind of unfolds the whole process. It came to pass on the seventh day that they then rose early about the dawning of the day and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day only, 
They marched around the city seven times and the seventh time, I have the circle, verse 16, and the seventh time, it happened. It happened. When the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, let's stop there for a moment and, and, and just consider, if you would, by way of the description of the account of what's being described there, again, it's somewhat repetitive. You have to ask the question, I know you perhaps already have, I do as well, why this approach? <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, for what reason does God ask for this approach? Well, I think for a couple of things that were lessons for them, that are lessons for us, and maybe why God takes the approach he does in our lives sometimes by faith and the way he works in the realm of the spirit different than by the law or human efforts. First of all, I think number one, if you're a note taker or you want to consider this, first of all, I think because God wanted them to be convinced how impossible it was to conquer what they were looking at. Think about it. Once a day for six days and then the seventh day, seven times on the seventh day, that means they had 13 long looks at the walls of Jericho. For a whole week, they did nothing. They weren't allowed to talk about it amongst each other. All they did for a week was go round and round and look at this day after day, look after look, and they had to realize what? If God does not work, it's never going to happen. And every time they went around and they stared at the walls of Jericho and maybe even they heard the taunts of the people of Jericho and remember, shh, they couldn't say anything back. Every time they went around and just surveyed it and surveyed it and surveyed it, God said, I've given it to you, I've given it to you. And they're walking around saying, okay, this is, I don't see how this... <laughs> and every day they're walking around and they're realizing more every day, perhaps as God wanted them to, that this was absolutely impossible in their own human effort in their own human ideas or ingenuity or their strength or their wisdom or their ability that it was absolutely impossible and if God didn't work it wasn't going to happen and can I say sometimes that's why God works the way that he works sometimes God needs to show us how absolutely impossible it really is for us and that it has got to be him so that we trust him for it and we let him do it so that he gets the glory and that ultimately we see that it is his power and that his promise is true that though it looks impossible and maybe it is humanly impossible from a human standpoint but that God shows us but with God nothing will be impossible and that with God's ability the impossible can become possible. Secondly, I think as well maybe this approach was it was teaching them to trust God certainly to walk by faith. And God wants us to walk by faith in the Christian life, in the spiritual life. Sometimes he will lead us in the way that he does. His promises in his word are written and given to us in such a way that it requires us to walk by faith. And think of it, as they're walking around every day, they are having to walk by faith. They're walking around a walled city of a people who were very organized and very entrenched militarily. And as they're walking around that city every day, do you know what they're doing? Other than maybe people thinking they're foolish, they're making themselves very vulnerable. See, if I'm up on top of a walled city and you walk around for a week straight, I'm chucking a rock on your head, a spear on your head. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I mean, it, this is why you build a wall. 
You build a wall so that as people are trying to come up to a wall, getting close to it, or as they're trying to climb up it, you from above already have a, an advantage because you can throw stuff down on your enemy. So they're making themselves vulnerable every day. They're walking around. Doo, 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 doo. The priests are playing the trumpets, and they're just walking around every day, making themselves vulnerable. What do they have to do? They have to trust God to protect them. They have to trust God and their vulnerability and, and humbly believe, all right, Lord, if we're going to do this your way, we're making ourselves vulnerable. We might really get hurt in this, Lord. We're putting ourselves at risk and they're making themselves vulnerable and having to trust that they're doing it God's way and that God will honor them in that and God will protect them for it. I think it's also, thirdly, teaching them to wait patiently in faith and to what? Allow God to work in His way and in his time and completely by his power. They had to believe that God's way is right and not try and force it in the flesh, not try and speed it along. All right, Lord, I mean, three days is enough. We did that. On the fourth day, we're charging. That's it. I mean, we, did, we at least did half of what you said. And God wants them to learn to wait patiently in faith. Those who wait upon the Lord, the Bible says, renew their strength because, again, it's the strength of the Lord. And sometimes God will work in our lives in a way where it's about a timetable thing where he's saying, look, I'm teaching you how to not just have faith, but to wait in faith, to let things happen in my timing. God makes all things beautiful in his time. And, and the timing of God is a very important thing to his work and his glory and purposes. As well, I think another thing they're learning, no doubt, as you look at this, God's teaching them self-control from their natural desires. They're just like you and I. You don't think that they didn't have human desires within them to want to perhaps act or respond. And again, the whole concept of how Joshua told them, you shall, verse 10, not shout or make any noise. Not one word could proceed out of your mouth. You know how hard that probably was? These were military soldiers. Now, I have no idea, but if I imagine, you know, deviant, pagan, ungodly people up on the wall, I'm sure they were saying a few things. I'm sure they were casting some comments. You idiots, you knocked me away. Who knows what they were saying? But God says, no response, nothing in return. I'm sure that there were times where they wanted to talk about it to one another. I'm sure somebody wanted to elbow somebody else and say, what are you thinking about this? I mean, do you think we should stone Joshua and point somebody new or something? I mean, it was this kind of crazy idea, isn't it? I mean, but again, they had to refrain they had to exercise discipline and self-control over their own human desires in submission he's teaching them faithfulness and discipline and obeying the lord though there's pressures from without there's probably pressure within wanting them to act and i'll tell you one final reason i think that god was using this approach and come with me inside the walls of jericho god's doing this i think because he's trying to extend mercy to the people inside jericho that are pagan and they're under the judgment of God. And so God grants a whole nother week as he watches, as they watch the armies of the Lord marching around the city and they were under the judgment of God. And I think God was mercifully, as God does, offering one last opportunity for them to surrender, to be spared from the judgment of God like Rahab will in this same story and God was waiting in forbearance and sometimes God will work in a way where they could God what, what, how long God come on do this work bring the hammer down so and, and God's saying listen I don't like judging people I don't find pleasure in the death of the wicked or having to be harsh with people I'm trying to spare people here I want to show mercy to people and sometimes God will make us wait in faith because he says 
you're already right with me and you're a big boy and you can wait because you have faith. They don't yet. You know me. They don't yet. And so sometimes God will ask us to wait and to trust him and work in the ways he does because he says, listen, it is about a bigger thing here. It's not just about you. And so sometimes God will ask us in our lives to, to wait upon him, to let him work in those ways. And so here they march around all these times. The seventh day finally comes. Verse 17, let's pick it up there. It says, the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. Notice, it and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. We'll see more about that as we finish the end of the chapter. She and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers. Here's another thing that was a command of the Lord. Verse 18, and you by all means shall abstain from the accursed things lest you become accursed when you take the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. Now take notice of that warning, verse 18. Circle that. We're not going to talk about it because chapter 7 is what happens when they don't obey God's warning. God says, listen, the accursed thing among the Amorite people, they're a deviant people, they're a wicked people, an idolatrous people. Don't touch any of their worldly carnal stuff because you will become entangled in it and you will defile the whole camp of Israel. God gives a warning and his warning we'll see in the next chapter isn't honored by one man and many people suffer a little bit of sin. One man's sin in the camp causes problems for the entire congregation. Verse 19, but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron and con are to be consecrated to the Lord, for they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Again, this was the first battle. It was the first spoils they were taking. And as always, the first fruits belong to the Lord. So the Lord says, I lay claim to that. No one be selfish. This is my victory, my miracle. Bring those things into the treasury of the Lord for his purposes. Verse 20, so the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout. I would have loved to have known what they said. <laughs> I don't know, but I just, I, I just would have been great to know what did they finally shout or how did they shout. But as they did it, look at it, the Bible tells us that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now, as we've said before, this is God's judgment upon these pagan nations. And keep in mind, Genesis 15, God had given these people groups 400 years to repent of their wickedness. You know, we may read a verse like that. We've talked about this before. And we think, man, that sounds so severe. Why the eradication and the judgment of God so strong, the edge of the sword against all those who are alive? Well, look, if you knew, the, the, as we talked about before, the practices of these people, the idolatry, the demonology, the child sacrifice, the deviant lifestyles that they were engaged in. God had given them hundreds of years, but the wickedness of the Amorites has now reached its full. And God is not just giving Israel the land. He's also bringing his judgment upon these people for their wickedness and the ways that they had been living so ungodly for so long without repentance. Verse 22, but Joshua said to the two men who espied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been despised went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. 
So they brought out her relatives and left them outside the camp. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25, great statement. And Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel in this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So, of course, this brings us back to Joshua chapter 2 when the two spies made an agreement with this woman who was a harlot, but who clearly we saw in chapter 2 had faith in Jehovah God. She said, your God is the real God and we have fear of your God. And, And this woman who exercised faith and demonstrated it by her works spared the two spies and they assured her, listen, Since you believe in our God, if you hang this scarlet thread, when when we come into your land and God brings his judgment against the inhabitants of your city, you will be spared from the judgment of God. And her faith here we see the promise of God was honored because Joshua, I, I have it circled in my Bible, verse 25, those three words, Joshua spared Rahab. Joshua spared Rahab. What is she spared of? She spared God's judgment because of her faith in the word of the Lord. They gave her a promise, she believed it, and her faith causes her to be spared from the wrath that came down. Verse uh, 31 of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Notice the Holy Spirit gives us the commentary Hebrews 11 and it says this was a picture. By her faith she was spared from God's judgment separate from everyone else who did not believe those who did not believe came under the judgment of god this one woman who did believe was spared and she was spared because of her faith you know what this is a picture if you would a picture of how it says joshua spared rahab jesus spares you and i by our faith whether we like this woman have a past of harlotry or immorality, no matter what the stain and filth of our past is, Jesus spares us by our faith. That's wonderful, by our faith. Think about it. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but this may perhaps be another miracle here because it says the walls, and God specifically says multiple times, the walls fell down flat. He wants us to realize, no confusion here, they didn't knock the walls in. They didn't give one, they didn't shove one brick over themselves. God, God says, no, the walls fell flat. They just came down. My question is this, where was Rahab's house? On the wall. So is that pretty awesome? Did God do a second miracle? Everybody else, all the walls fell down flat and, and there's this one little part of the wall sitting there still, Rahab's house, because God spared her, which goes to show you, God can show distinction in judgment. God can show distinction. God will bring his judgment, God will bring his wrath, but he can spare with distinction those who have faith. And how wonderful for you and I, the Bible says we're not appointed to wrath. God can bring his judgment upon this ungodly, Christ-rejecting world, and he can spare you and I by our faith in Jesus Christ. He's the God that does such things. He spares Rahab beautifully here. Verse 26, And Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho the idea is rebuilds it he shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gate so here Joshua issues a warning a command but it's also in a sense a prophecy to say here listen what God has now removed 
let no man ever rebuild. God has removed these walls. He has brought these things down. Let no man ever rebuild it because if he does, there will be great consequences in his life, pain and problems, the loss of his own firstborn child. Here's what's interesting. Write in your notes, 1 Kings 16.34 because there it tells us that 500 years later, a man seeks to disregard the warning of God. He lays the foundation of the city of Jericho again at the cost of his own child. And God's word, his warning comes to pass 500 years later. Listen, God's word stands. If God gives a warning, honor his warning. And of course, the principle here spiritually as I said is this. What's God doing? God is saying, listen, when I bring down the walls, when I remove something from you, don't you ever rebuild it. If I take something out of your life, if I remove a barrier, if I miraculously work in such a way for your benefit and for my glory to remove something from you, don't you ever rebuild that. Don't you ever go back to that. Listen, if God brings down your Jericho, there's some sin he's delivered you from. There's something that he has you know, taken out of your path so that you can enter into what God wants for you. Listen, don't ever rebuild that. Don't ever build a bridge back to some sin, to some habit, to some past. If God powerfully removes something out of your life, don't ever let anything tempt you to go back and rebuild that. You appreciate what God's removed and walk in the victory of all that God has for you. Verse 27 says, So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame. Joshua spread throughout all the country. So this, look at this powerful work of the Lord caused the fame of Joshua, his representative, to be spread all around as a result. And again, as Joshua is so often a picture of Jesus, can I say this? When the Lord does a powerful work, like bringing down the walls of somebody's Jericho, that's what should be the result. The fame of our Joshua, Jesus, should be spread all around. It should cause people when they see the walls to come down to say, wow, Jesus is awesome. And it should cause the name of Jesus to be lifted up, not the name of a church to be lifted up, not the name of a pastor to be lifted up, not the name of any human being because no flesh should glory in his presence. When there is a genuine, powerful work of the Lord, a move of the Spirit of God where walls come down, victories are experienced, awesome things happen, it should cause the fame of Jesus to be permeated all around and people should say, wow. Our Joshua, Jesus, he's awesome. Look what Jesus has done, amen?